This is the Scottish Football Citizen, bringing you the best of Scottish football from the past. I'm Andy Kerr, and this week we delve into the archive of the Scottish Football Museum to bring you an interview with David Francie, who many listeners of a certain age will remember fondly for his commentary work with BBC Scotland from the early 1960s until the late 1980s. Before we get started, here's your weekly dose of trivia. Which Scottish comedian was the face of the long-running football comedy show Only an Excuse? We'll give you the answer at the end of the podcast. One of Scotland's best-known football commentators and media figures, David Francie was known as the voice of Scottish football and was born in Glasgow in February 1924. His father had moved to Glasgow from Northern Ireland to find employment in the Clyde shipyards and growing up in the shadow of the cranes, like many young boys at the time, young David was football daft. A knee injury at the age of 17 put paid to his footballing aspirations and the Second World War also interrupted the pace of life for the teenage Francie. Serving in the RAF during the war, he met his wife Sheila while working at Prudential waiting for his call-up for active service. After the war was over, Francie decided in 1952 that he fancied his hand at commentating on games and wrote a letter to the head of sport at the BBC. They gave him a trial and he impressed the station enough to let them give him a role in sports TV shows. Francie much preferred the medium of radio and when Archie McPherson was looking for a move from radio to TV, Francie was able to swap with him and started commentating on live matches. He combined his weekend job as a commentator with full-time occupations within the Inland Revenue and the Scottish Gas and Electricity Boards, to the surprise of many who knew him for his catchphrases such as Oh dear oh dear and It's all over. Such was Francie's popularity that when a BBC club held a competition to see who could impersonate Francie, the man himself submitted a fly entry. His tape came fourth in the contest. Francie retired from commentating in 1987, with his last match being Scotland versus Brazil, and he retired from his day job as a junior manager at the Energy Board in 1989. David sadly passed away in 2011 at the age of 87, but the mention of his name and his voice still evoke fond memories from regular listeners to football matches on the radio. Let's delve into the archive and hear from the man himself, starting with a rather unfortunate brush with the law. Firstly, um, to talk a bit about your background, just to give us an idea of where you grew up and stuff like that, where and when were you born and brought up? I was born in Glasgow, and I was brought up in Glasgow, in the west end of Glasgow, mm-hmm. uh, and... That is really where I got my great liking for football mm-hmm. because we used to play outside the house, out in the street at football, as youngsters did in those days. And, uh, well, it just became part of my life. Yeah. Um, what are your earliest memories of football? And can you tell us about the time that you appeared in court? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that, that was a time I should really forget. But the fact that I was only... Uh, I don't know, about 10 or 12 years old at the most, is isn't so serious, I don't suppose. 
Yes, we were playing, we had a full-scale match in progress at one of the, the side streets. And, uh, you know, with the jackets down at each end, and, oh, this this was a really great game that was going a little, what we used to call a tanner ball then, you know, little rubber ball. And uh, to our horror, uh, we looked up and we saw two large policemen at one end of the road. So we immediately turned to run the other way and then we discovered there were two large policemen at the other end too. <laughs> so, so we were absolutely bottled in. So we were given a lecture by them and we were told we would have to appear in court to answer for our sins, which uh, we duly did. And we were given a, a bit of a lecture by whoever it was, the chief superintendent or whoever he was and uh, told not to do such things again. But the unfortunate thing was that uh, the charge, if you could call it such, as it was read out, said uh, going into gardens and breaking down flowers and all sorts of things, which was the furthest thought from our mind, because in those days you really, I don't remember us ever uh, going in for vandalism at all. You know, we were more anxious to score goals. Presumably the ball would go over into the odd garden and we'd nip in to get it. But that that was the situation there. That was Mm. a serious part of it. (laughs) Um, One thing that's quite interesting is we've been trying to find an old tanner ball. And obviously because they were so cheap and kind of... There are, we can't actually find one that no, still has existence, no, but no. Um, could you tell us what a tanner ball was like, just to give us a description of it, and how often would you play it? Was it quite a common thing just to be out playing football all night in that era? <laughs> oh yes, yes. Well, it was just a, a rubber ball, a, a sort of, uh, not a solid rubber ball, you know, a bit bigger than, than a tennis ball, a fair wee bit bigger than a tennis ball, but uh, it, it, it was hollow, you know, and it was one of the, the dreadful things, occasionally it burst. <laughs> but uh, that, that, that was what the tanner balls would have looked like. What was your other question? How often would you play football and where would you play? Oh, we played, we played as soon as we got home from school, we rushed home from school to get way down. Uh, sometimes down to the park and we played there but if we couldn't get to the park or if the park was muddy for some reason we just played in one of the one of the streets one of the side streets right brilliant um, one thing that I thought was quite interesting from some of the other work I've been researching was how you got information about the big football teams then and you were saying that you read a lot of the evening newspapers can you tell us a bit about what the reports were like and who were the writers back then as well Eh. Uh, I'm not sure about the writers. I, uh-huh. I probably have them in my top if I say I was just a youngster and so-and-so was writing for the such-and-such, you know. Uh, the, the, food, the papers were wonderful. Mm. The evening papers, I remember, the evening news, the evening times, the evening citizen. I used to manage to lay my hands on them all at some stage. In most cases, other people had bought them, you know. I mean, maybe we had one in the house and our neighbours had one, etc. And uh, they were a wonderful source of information. I, you know, by the time I was about maybe eight years of age, at, at the most, I could have told you every team practically that played in Scotland, I could rattle off the names of them all. I hadn't seen them, obviously. I didn't know what the people were like, you know, but I could rattle off their names. Mm. And uh, uh, this was wonderful. I, I don't know if the kids get as much fun now because they're always watching and listening. But uh, to read about the game, uh, it was very exciting. And there were some wonderful writers in those days. I, I can't recall names, you know. I, mm. I do remember Rex of the Sunday Mail and, and Willie Harkness, uh, mm. of, uh, he wrote for the Post. Uh, 
people like that. They, mm-hmm. they were marvellous writers. They brought the game alive. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that you memorised team lists. Is that they yes. print the team lists at the end of the report? Was that kind of the standard? At the end of the report, you always got right. Rangers, Celtic, Motherwell, Hearts, whatever it was. But also on, I think it was a Thursday evening. Uh, and most of the evening papers, they printed the teams for Saturday, Saturday's teams, you know. Right. And uh, we saw from that, and it was amazing, those managers could tell you what, of course, they had a much smaller pool then, and one expected to have the same team every Saturday, you know. It, it was quite a shock if there was someone different in the team. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm moving on a bit. At the suggestion of one of your friends, you took voice production lessons, I believe. <laughs> um, what were they like, and how did they improve your voice? Joseph, a strong voice. <laughs> yes, well, I I had lessons for singing in the first place, uh, just a few because I was always very keen on singing and, and still very keen in music. Uh, so I had some singing lessons, and uh, then after I got into the BBC, after I was invited to go in and uh, did a, a few tests, etc., I had some voice production lessons from uh, Howard Lockhart, a, a name which must come up in the media, although not in the football connection. Wonderful man. Uh, mm. And Howard gave me a few lessons then. And I don't know how it helped, but it, it seemed to it seemed to help mm-hmm. uh, the, the projection of the voice, etc. And someone once told me, and I was quite flattered to hear it, that... Uh, they liked, although they weren't all that interested in football, they liked to listen to it because they got the full range of the voice right from bass to tenor. <laughs> 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 that was good or bad, I don't know. Was it quite common for people to go for kind of voice lessons, like football commentators, or was that no, I don't quite think unusual? So. I, think, I think it was quite unusual. Just they cost money, you see, and there really wasn't an awful lot of money around in those uh-huh. days. Oh, we'll move on to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what made you write to the BBC in the first place, and what sort of work did you ask for? Well, I wrote to the BBC asking if I could have uh, an audition for singing. And uh, I got uh, an application form back. And it was frightening, to say the least. I said, I've read through it. I said, well, they won't listen to me. So uh, I I sent it back. But I said, uh, and I don't really know what prompted me to say this. I said in my letter returning a thing that I really could not fill in the form to any great advantage. You know, they were asking, what was your last recital? And all this sort of stuff, you see, and I hadn't done recital. But what I did tell them was a bit of my background, how I was mad about football, as I was, and uh, that I had been told I had a reasonably good voice, and I wondered if there was anything, any way I could work in the BBC. And I got a letter back from a gentleman, and I say that (laughs) advisedly, called Peter Thompson, and uh, Peter invited me along for an audition, and after I'd finished with that, he said, well... We'll give you a trial for about six weeks or so and see how you get on, David. <laughs> and it lasted for 36 years. <laughs> because in, in, in broadcasting, you're always on trial. Yeah. You know, uh, people say to you, producers, etc., say, oh, that was a great commentary, David. Mind you, you're only as good as your last one. <laughs> <laughs> um, your letter came from Peter Thompson. Was he a big name in that era? Yes, very big name. Peter was a commentator par excellence, 
absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, and he, he was head of sport. He had started up the programme called uh, Sport Real, and uh, it was started up by him. He called in a number of reporters and they all gave reports on a Saturday. I was eventually in on that too. Gave reports on a Saturday night. It went out at half past six on Saturday night and we covered everything. Football matches, uh, racing, cycling, boxing, you name it. It was all, it was all there in that half hour, packed. And Peter was the instigator of that. And of course, he, he was a great broadcaster himself. Mm. And I was very flattered when... He said to me one day, uh, he said to uh, a crowd of people, oh, this is David Francais, uh, he's a new commentator, he's better at it than I ever was. <laughs> oh. He was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but he had a, a kind of quite a deep, I mean, I've never actually heard a Peter Thompson commentary, but he had a kind of deep baritone voice. Beautiful resonance in his voice, yes, mm -hmm. beautiful resonance. Um, can you tell us about the audition that you had to do and what they asked you to do in your audition? Yes. Uh, they gave me uh, a number of news reports, which I had to read, uh, after which, having apparently satisfied them on that side of it, they asked me to go to a football match on the Saturday, uh, write a report within half an hour of the game finishing, and come back and uh, do it. You know, not live, just uh, do it. Mm. So I did that, and... Uh, it just went from there. <laughs> that was after that that I was told I would have my six weeks trial. <laughs> um, we're just um, to build up a more of a profile of Peter Thompson. Do you know anything about his kind of his background? I've heard that he was from Fife. But he was a Fifer. Peter was a Fifer, although you'd never have known by his voice because you know Fifer's voice is sort of high pitched at parts. So it seems to sort of go up and down a bit. But Peter, as you say, had this beautiful resonant voice. Uh, he was not a very tall man, although by his voice, <laughs> in those days, you, see, you didn't see people, you, you heard them. Uh, you'd have said he was, a, he was a big, powerful man, but he was actually quite a small man, very, very pleasant man. They, when television came on, television wasn't Peter's forty, nor was it my forty, uh, but he, being the head of sport, he had to sort of do certain things in television, and I don't think he was so happy in that. He, Peter was like myself, he was a radio man through and through, mm -hmm. and a marvellous, marvellous broadcaster. Right. Um, can you describe what the Sports Real Studio looked like? You mentioned in your book, I think, that there was um, a microphone in the middle of the table. Can you remember what the microphone was like? <laughs> it just grew up in the middle of the table, and Robert Dunnett, who was a presenter there, another wonderful broadcaster, Robert sat at one side of the table, he was permanently there, and we were out in the anteroom, just outside the studio, and uh, there was, of course, a running order. And as soon as it came close to us, I was maybe on after someone, say, Jimison Clark. Uh, you maybe remember Jimison too. Uh, I was on after Jimison Clark. So when it was time for Jimison to move in to the seat, I made my way into the studio. And the person who had been sitting in the seat moved out. Jimison sat down and I, you know, and, and it was this sort of parade all the time until the, until the programme was finished. <laughs> um, can you, you mentioned one of the, who were the other reporters for Sports Reel in that era? Uh, well now, not in any particular order. Uh, yes, they come in. We had Dunkey Wright doing athletics. We had uh, Malcolm Turner doing boxing. Uh, football. Uh, George Davidson, 
uh, Andy Cowan Martin, uh, myself, Jack, uh, Jack Ingalls, uh, Jack Puri. Wow. I've probably forgotten one of the most important ones. <laughs> 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 uh, well, those, uh, that's yeah. a fair sort of number. What kind of background would they come from? Would they have been sports journalists for newspapers or were they just kind of people who were suited to radio work? Yes, I think they were people most suited to radio work as a whole. There was the occasional journalist in it, but I think Peter Thompson's theory was that written journalism was different from broadcasting journalism, and it's quite true. Uh, I think he felt that the written journalist might be a wee bit stilted on, on the air, you know, because naturally you write more dif differently to what you speak. And uh, I found anyway that most of them, if not practically all, were chaps who were doing different things during the week, you know, teachers and mm. various people like that. There do seem to be like um, Archie, obviously, was a teacher, and Bill right. McLaren, the rugby, he was a teacher, a teacher as well. It was right. more kind of an emphasis on communicating rather exactly. than exactly. writing. Exactly, um, yes. Um, how much were you paid in the early days? I found <laughs> this quite amusing. <laughs> my, my first fee, and I was very excited about it, was two guineas which in today's parlance is two pounds, ten pence. <laughs> is it? Yeah, <laughs> ten pence. Yes, that, that, was, that was the first fee. Mm -hmm. uh, when I started off doing the commentaries, I went up to four guineas. And then after doing the commentaries for a short time, I went up to eight guineas. But by the time I retired in 88, they'd been very good to me. I was getting at least twice that. <laughs> Because you said in your book, which I thought was quite funny, that you'd imagined that, that the commentators were all people who drove about in Rolls Royce. Exactly. And, yeah. <laughs> and then you saw That's the reality. Right. <laughs> um, can you remember very much about your first match report, which I think was Queen's Park against Arbroath? That's right. I don't remember very much. <laughs> I think it was. I think there was no scoring, you know, <laughs> as, the, as there would be in that. I had about 45 seconds to do, and... Uh, you know, you will know, but to the uninitiated, 45 seconds seems nothing. But if you've got to sit down and talk for 45 seconds, that's quite a, lo a long time, really. Uh, and I, I just remember I went in the bus, the number two bus, into <laughs> uh, to Hamden. It used to stop right outside Hamden, and then I got I got it back again. So it was always a hassle getting back from Hamden by bus because you know when the crowds came out, they soon filled up the bus. But That's fortunately, with Queen's partner, bro, the crowds weren't so massive, you know. <laughs> it's amazing that they would send you on a bus when you think about it now, you know, sending a well, they, they didn't, they just, just sent me out this press ticket for Hamden and said, Will you do a 45 second report on Saturday? <laughs> so, were you, were you up in the press box? Yes, then yes. What, what was your first impressions like at the Hampton Press? Oh, it was, uh, it was quite awe-inspiring, really, you know. I'd see all those rows and rows. Uh, and, of course, the view of the park was absolutely fantastic, you know. Uh, from standing in a terracing, so almost looking up, you know. You were up on top looking down. It was like wa watching a chess match in progress. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you spent quite a lot of time with Sterling Albion kind of early on in your career. Um, can you explain why they were a difficult team to report on? Well, uh, purely the distance. Once again, uh, I didn't have a car in those days and uh, one had to travel by public transport, which meant getting into Central, was it? Uh, no, Queen Street, getting in, I think. It was Queen Street and then getting the train from there out to... Uh, Stirling and uh, that was fine if everything went to plan and remember the game finished normally it should have finished about uh, quarter to five, ten to five and uh, I had to get to train back the programme started at half past six it was quite a rush back uh, and if the game as so often happened was delayed because the gentleman who owned Stirling Albion were a cha- gentleman called Tam Ferguson a rather fearsome chap if you go on the wrong side of him. And uh, Tam decreed that the football matches should start at quarter past three rather than three o'clock to let the punters get into the pubs and the <laughs> I think that was the idea behind it. I think probably Tam owned most of the pubs anyway in Stirling. And uh, the result was that it was always a scramble to get the train. And if one missed it, I only missed it on one occasion and uh, I thought the programme would fold up, you know, but uh, it didn't. <laughs> I, I heard, I just got off the train to hear the tail end of it, and it was Andy Cowan Martin was reading out what would have been my report, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, was Tam Ferguson, I think it was Alec Cameron that told me this story, that the stand at Stirling Albion in those days was the back of a coal lorry or something? That's right, yes, yes. That, that's right. Alec yeah. Cameron claimed that if he wrote a bad report in Stirling Albion when he went to find his seat it would be covered in coal dust. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could quite imagine. <laughs> um, so around, uh, just after that time, TV was kind of taken off. Yes, um, yes. How did those you worked with adapt to TV? Did people, did many people move from radio to television or did most people stick with what they knew? Most of us stuck with what we knew. Uh, for a while we were doing the sort of two things, you know. We'd do a report at quarter to five or five o'clock on television and then move over to do the one on, on radio at half past six. One or two of us did that. Uh, but gradually... People got sort of segregated, you know. Uh, Peter got a team built up that mostly did television and the, the others did radio. Mm-hmm. Um, you did a few early TV commentaries, is that right? Yes, I did. I um, did, yeah. In your book, you mentioned a Hibs Motherwell match for the cameras missed a Joe Baker penalty, <laughs> is yes. that right? Um, and you had to use a shinty crowd. Could you tell us the story? <laughs> yes, you see, the, the thing about those days, it was film that was used. And the film had to be changed. The film would run for about 10 minutes. Uh, and we had a, a film camera, a sound camera, and a mute camera. Now, when the film was being changed, it was the mute camera that was on. And uh, on this particular occasion, the film, of course, was being changed. And it took a little bit of time between the director or whoever was out there shouting, right, film's finished, you know, and someone getting the, the mute camera going. And it just so happened at that point, just as say, uh, I think it was John Martis, but I, I don't, I think it was John Martis who uh, had appended <laughs> Mr. Baker in no uncertain fashion. And it was just at that point that the film ran out. By the time they got the mute 
camera going. The ball was just hitting the inside of the post against the net. You see, he didn't see the run up and the shot and the, all that. So what I had to do, as one did in those days, was go back to the studio and uh, some clever chap decided to put in a bit of a crowd scene while this was happening and I could voice tape shout over the thing that uh, Baker's shooting a goal, etc. And uh, they switched to a crowd scene and the only one they had in those days was a shinty crowd, <laughs> which wasn't very thick on the ground. And uh, I remember one gentleman was standing there with an umbrella up, you know, and a raincoat just about down to his ankles. And uh, it didn't, it somehow didn't click with a penalty goal going into the net, you know, and, and the crowd standing with umbrellas up. <laughs> um, one of the things that a few people have said is that radio is kind of easier to get into a flow because you're more in control as the commentator on yes, radio. Yes. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that, absolutely. I, I, I liked radio because I liked talking and I liked being in control. Uh, when I did television commentaries, I always was very conscious that the camera should be telling the story and I should just be filling in here and there, uh, which I wasn't good at at all. <laughs> Talk too much. <laughs> but uh, that, that is true. The, the commentator in radio, he paints the whole picture. Mm. I don't say it's any easier on television, possibly harder, I don't know, to, to just stop talking and just put in a few words here and there. You know? mm. <laughs> Well, one of the things that Archie told me when I went out to see him, and this is going back to TV again, is that yeah. there was all sorts of rules about you don't talk over a goal kick yes, or something, yes. like a lot of rules like that that were yeah, very yes. complex, but yes, quite yes. difficult to, when you're used to radio and just going, ah, and it's goal kick. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't really do enough television to, yeah. to, to worry about it at all. Mm. Maybe that's why I didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't worry about it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, Archie was listening, right? You couldn't talk over a goal kick, yeah. a shy. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, you see, they needed places, the editors needed places to come out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they could cut at that point, but if you're talking all the time, there's no place to put in the scissors. <laughs> yeah, it's very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the other famous instances that you remembered for was the time that you and John Blair fell off your chairs. Yeah, yes. Could you tell us about that? Yes, that was Budapest. Yes, it was Celtic versus Budapest. Doja and uh, a European tie. Now, and those, we, we were used, well, you know, our sort of positions in, in Scottish grounds, you know, we're used to being up in the stand or up in our own commentary box. But there, uh, in, in Budapest, they, they stood round the park, commentators stood at the touchline and shouted at a microphone and was standing up in front of them. And uh, I, I wasn't happy about this, so I made representations and we got a, a table on which to put our notes and our stopwatch, etc. And uh, a couple of little folding chairs were put down for us. <laughs> and it was just, uh, I don't know, it was somewhere into the commentary anyway, when uh, I turned round to say something to John. My chair started going, it caught his, <laughs> and we both landed in our backs. And with it being a fixed microphone, I couldn't get forward to tell them what happened. <laughs> so uh, it took a little, a few seconds anyway, to get to the microphone, and it was it was quite hilarious that we got it sorted out. <laughs> the thing that a lot of people have said is that 
you know, a lot of commentators they think like being hit in the, in the face yeah, with the ball. Yeah, yeah. You always kind of talked through them, and that was yeah. what was kind of entertaining. Where a yes. lot of commentators would kind of cover up the fact that you were always quite open about yeah, it. Well, that's right. I always like to bring the, <laughs> the listeners into the picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned in your book that Jock Steen was quite amused by you and John Blair. Ah, yes, indeed, indeed. Um, what sort of relationship did you have with Jock? You mentioned that early on you got into trouble a couple of times. I had a very mixed relationship with Jock Steen uh, in the early days. Stop this first. Yeah. Oh, oh no, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Adds a bit of character to it. You don't slip. <laughs> uh, yes, I had a sort of mixed relationship at first with Jock. Because Jock was a very awesome character when he wanted to be. And, uh, well, I, I was sort of youngish and starting off and that sort of thing. And uh, he, he was a very important character. And I, in my innocence, I always, I thought, played it right down the middle as far as Celtic and Rangers were concerned. But, of course, if you were a Celtic man, you were assured that I was a Rangers follower. If you're a Rangers man, you're sure that I was a Celtic follower. It's an amazing thing. I used to get a lot of letters from listeners to the World Service of the BBC, and uh, they were about 50-50 <laughs> accusing me. <laughs> but, uh, no, so Jock used to play on this sort of thing. You know, he used to, Jock could play the media beautifully, you know. He, <laughs> in those days, if, if Rangers had gone out to sign up, player at £100,000 or something, which was a fortune in those days, Jock would have had something in the headlines just to beat it, you know, <laughs> to move it down a slot or two. He was, he was a super guy, uh, as far as that was concerned. And uh, he was only, he was interested in Celtic and interested in Celtic winning, etc. So if he could upset one a wee bit, you know, and, mm. and get one to go his way, well, he would do that. But I, I always found him, I always found him very fair. And another thing, when we were abroad, uh, he was always ready to give me an interview, give Radio Scotland an interview before he would give the people down south an interview or anything like that. Uh, so I, I always found him very good. I was sorry when he had an accident, he had a very serious accident near the end of his career. And I think that maybe uh, blunted him just a little bit as far as aggression was concerned. You know, it was a, a bit... Uh, a bit more easy going after that. I don't know if it helped them as, as a manager, mm -hmm. but uh, he became a better person, I thought, because of that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to remember, you got into trouble from him. <laughs> yes. What was it? was a, a, a Jimmy Johnston tackle, I think, that you criticised? That, that's like, right. It was, uh, it was once again a Celtic Rangers game. This is where one usually gets into trouble. And uh, it was getting a bit out of hand. And towards the end of the game, uh, it was Dave Smith who was playing for Rangers at that time. Dave Smith went down and little Jimmy Johnson stamped on his ankle as he walked past him. <laughs> and I, of course, the next time in the moment, I said, oh, that's ridiculous. The referee will have to do something about Johnson. You know, he stamped deliberately there. Onto it. Well, the referee did. He blew for time up. <laughs> but... Uh, I was going to cover uh, a Morton Celtic game on the Wednesday at Capelo and I was just going into the, through the Morton uh, official turnstile and uh, I looked up and here was Jock, you know, and, hello Jock, you know, and he said, hello. And then he stopped and he said, don't you hello me, he said, don't you hello Jock me. 
So uh, the referee should have done something about Johnson. What about Greg in the first half? Did you not see what? Etc. Etc. So that was my first real brush with Jock. After that, we were usually pretty good. <laughs> um, did you think he was the most effective of the kind of Scottish managers of that era at dealing with the media? Do you think he? Oh, I think I think yes. I think he knew best how to to deal with the media. He used it to his advantage, as any good PR person would do. <laughs> uh, he 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 was a great PR person for Celtic. Mm. Um. Now, one of the things in your book, um, the Ibrox disaster obviously affected quite a lot of people, oh, yes, but obviously yes. you more than most because your son was actually at the game. Can you tell us about indeed. that? Yes, well, it was a strange situation I was in. I had been doing the commentary and I had to dash back to the studio to, to, to do a report in the studio. So I didn't really see what was going on. And I was away before... You know, and I, before this uh, disaster unravelled itself, and I, I went into when I got into the studio, uh, it was Peter I met again, Peter Tom's dreadful thing, David, dreadful thing, and I wasn't sure what he's talking about because I had my report to prepare, you know, and uh, I wondered if it was something with the game, and then uh, he approached me again and he said, D- "Did you see what happened?" And I said, no, what, what is it about? And it was only then that he explained to me about the terrible disaster with the crowd. And then it occurred to me, this was in the canteen in the BBC, then it occurred to me, gosh, Michael's at that game, you know? And, uh, you know, uh, well, the, the stories coming out were really because there were flashes on radio and television almost every few minutes. And uh, it was a most worrying time. I didn't want to phone Sheila because <laughs> she maybe hadn't heard of it, you know, and that would just have upset her too. And uh, eventually I did get up enough courage to phone Sheila and she said Michael had just walked in. So she wasn't aware of it and he wasn't aware of it. He had left just before the end. Mm-hmm. That happened almost in the last minute, you know, just at the final whistle. Mm-hmm. But it was a dreadful disaster, dreadful thing. Um Another game that I wanted to ask you about was you went to the Real Madrid Eintracht Frankfurt game, didn't you? As a supporter rather than as a yes, commentator. Right. Um, can you tell us a bit about that match and yeah. what it was like? Oh, that that was wonderful. The the players there were superb footballers. They were all footballers. In Scotland at that time, we had certain players for certain positions, and that was their position, and they were terrific at maybe at, at right fullback, you know, or a smashing outside left, whatever. But those lads could play anywhere in the field. Uh, and I remember one chap called the Stefano, who played for Real. Uh, when we saw him, he was wearing a number nine jersey, but he was often back at his own <laughs> his own eighteen yard line, getting the ball thrown out to him, etc. You know, and this was a, a totally different concept, certainly to me, and I think to most most of the fans. And of course, some of the fans were absolutely overawed by the whole thing. I remember Hento, who played for also for Real Madrid, a little fellow. He played outside left, as we called it then. I remember him beating about five people and gone in and he shot and he shot was inches wide of the post you know and this wag beside me says oh I'll get a sack for that <laughs> another one said Rangers should sign a stand or sell a stand and sign some of those boys you know 
But is it true that um, like the crowd stayed to applaud oh, after? Right, a minute. Applauded both sides. Applauded both. Mind you, in those days, there was an awful lot of appreciation, I think, by the fans of really good good players in those days, and I, I think there probably still is. But it was more unusual then, you know. And now you can switch on the telly and watch Real Madrid nearly every week you know if you want to but in those days you didn't you know you, you just didn't have them there and to have them in person in front of you turning on this fabulous football it was wonderful oh it made a tremendous impression on me that game mm. it was football really as it should be played and goals goals coming every few minutes you know mm. <laughs> everyone, what everyone says about that match we've got like old black and white newsreel kind of footage of it and says oh it was nothing like that you need to have seen it <laughs> oh that's right that's <laughs> He absorbed the atmosphere because there was there was no animosity among the crowd. Everyone was supporting the football rather than, than a particular team. No. Mm. It must have been quite a big event to be staged in Glasgow. Oh, it was, yes. Well. European Cup final, ma- massive event, yes. Mm. We've got another one coming Mind soon. We should, we should have a lot more because Glasgow's a superb place for, yeah. for uh, football. You know. mm. Hopefully now Hamden's been done up and it's all nice. Yeah, that's right. Get some more football. <laughs> <laughs> um, just before, I want to ask you some questions about commentary specifically. But just before we go into that, are you glad you made the decision to stay in radio and, and why is that? Oh yes, I did. One of the main reasons for that was that in those early days, uh, radio was live, television, there was very little live television. It was mostly highlights. And apart from the constrictions, I say I was no use at not talking, etc. Apart from that sort of thing, uh, the, to go abroad to do the games, it, it had to be radio, you know. And I, I was always much happier doing radio for, for one of those reasons. And I was glad I stuck with it. I did say to Peter Thompson at one time, he, he had me doing a few of them, and I said, you know, Peter, I'm much happier doing radio comedy. I feel freer, I feel I'm better at it, etc. And he said, oh, well, I've got to use my resources to the best of ability, David. We'll see what happens, you know. But he got, he got me back on radio not long after that. <laughs> um, so in 1964, you became a commentator rather than just a reporter. A reporter, that's how, right. how do those jobs differ? Well, as a commentator, one is actually playing the game as, you know, as it's happening. And you've got to... I know with reporting too, you've got to take the the match, paint pictures of it and put the pictures in writing. But uh, you don't have that time. You can get much more excited, much more involved with the, the running commentaries as they go on. Uh, and, and that was the main thing. With a reporting, the question of notebooks, you know, sitting down, keeping notes of things and then afterwards writing, writing the, the story. But as I say, to, to do it as the game's going on, one felt that one was actually playing. Mm, and it was more exciting. <laughs> much more exciting. Were you ever given any training in commentary or advice even, or was it just, there you go, 90 minutes? No, it was just, it was just there you go. I was uh, asked to do a commentary uh, down at Greenock once again. Uh, you know, it was just being being taped or, or being recorded as it was, and it was in a big record, you know, a big disc. And uh, after it, quite a wee story about that because I was holding the telephone, I was playing this over and I was holding the telephone, I phoned Sheila and I said, listen to this. And she was listening and Peter walked in <laughs> to the office <laughs> and I said, oh, he said, all right, David, he said, it's worth listening to, let her hear it. <laughs> so uh, 
so so that was it. So they listened to that, and then he said, "No, he, he wanted to send me out and give me a shot at this." So it worked out well. Very well. Can you remember the equipment that you used in the early days? Was it always the lip microphone? Always the lip microphone, yeah, yeah. yeah. I liked the lip microphone right up until the present day. You know, you could sort of hold onto it. It, was, <laughs> it became part of one's body almost, you know. I don't know how much truth's in this or not, but on one of the websites, there's a, a David Francie. I don't know, I didn't, I didn't put it on. <laughs> It was one of my grandsons said uh, that one of his friends said he turned up David Francis was umpteen things of it, including the microphone used by David Francis in One Game or Other. I don't know anything about it. But that might be possible to chase it down in the Yeah, website. I should try yeah. that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, that would be to have one that someone had used. Yes. I suppose if you don't know anything about it, there's no way of proving that it is actually your <laughs> microphone. <No. laughs> <laughs> Just start selling in the yeah. old microphones. Going, yeah, this is the one he used. Um, <laughs> but were commentators huts still around when you started or had they disappeared? Commentators I think? what? Huts. At first, they, they, they used to, every time the BBC came up to Hamden, I think, it kind of ended at the early 50s maybe, so it would just have been before yeah, your time. Yeah, yeah. They would build wee kind of wooden huts that were kind of sound enclosed. So oh, yes, yes. No, no, <laughs> that. we were free to be criticised from all angles. <laughs> Did you ever get comments from the crowd? Oh, very often, yes, very mm. often. Uh, because we weren't always in close, you know, in the press box of Hamden Friends, we had our own commentary section along at the end and at Ibrooks and at uh, Celtic Park, etc. But uh, on some of the grounds, one just sat in a stand, you know, with the, the fans all around, and if one said something which they disagreed of, they told you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were always kind of thought, obviously, as an, an exciting commentator, the kind of edge of the seat. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think that is, and was that something you deliberately tried to do? Was... Yes, I, I once... I realised that I could be exciting <laughs> in the loosest form. I, uh, I, yes, I, I did cultivate it, you know, I did cultivate it. I must admit there were times when I could switch off and speak to you, you know, and I'd go, <laughs> Yes, but uh, I always felt uh, that, that one should entertain as well as anything else, and I, I I feel like people like to be excited about these things rather than just get the flat statement of what's happening, you know. Mm. Do you think there's a difference between English commentators and Scottish commentators in that respect? Because I think English commentators are much more, Lead and he's back. had this many caps. And that's right, that's right. That, that, that was the case. They've caught up with us, if I can be unkind to them. They've caught up with us more recently, some of them. But in the, the days when I was working, and Peter Thompson particularly was working commentaries, oh, it was all this very laid-back stuff about so-and-so's uh, father was in the Grenadier Guards, etc., you know, for 15 years. And really, I wanted to know what was happening out in that park, you know? And I, I think most listeners were wanting to hear what was happening in the park. And Peter had that exciting, racy style, and I fell into it, I think because I used to listen to him so often, I automatically sort of fell into it. Mm. Um, what do you think of the allegation that to do with kind of Scottish football journalists and commentators getting in in the excitement? A lot of people, I think it was an English journalist once, called them fans with typewriters. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's a bad thing? Or no, I think I think that's a, I think that's a great thing uh, because 
it shows that we're, we're really involved in the game. We, we enjoy the game for itself, not just for the money we can make doing it. No, I, I don't think uh, that should be taken as a disparity. There's maybe meant as a disparaging remark, but I wouldn't take it that, that mm. way. No, it's interesting because everyone, and we have uh, the curator of the museum saying, now, if you don't think it'll offend people, uh-huh. ask them what they think yeah. about being called fans of typewriters. Yeah. And I was like, but surely it's a good thing if you're... And everyone has kind of said, you yes, know, yes. if we've got a bit of enthusiasm for the game, it's better than someone who's detached. Ah, detached and just waiting to get his cheque at the end of the month. <laughs> <laughs> see that? Talking about exciting, do you see that little, that little window there? Uh-huh. That was sent to me from America as the most exciting commentator in the world service for the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> most exciting commentator in the world. It says David France, the voice of Radio Palatine. That was one of the stations out there, that obviously taking our world service. Uh, that's amazing. So was that, I think I read about that in the book, People, just, someone just turned up at your door. That's right, you know I, mean? I was cutting the grass and they just turned up. <laughs> I've got something for you. <laughs> Is it a bomb? <laughs> Um, another thing about your commentaries is that there seem to have been some kind of urban myths, shall we say, that have grown up around them. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that most people have kind of mentioned to me is the fact that you were thought to swear at one point. <laughs> Can you tell us the story of that commentary and what happened? That came from the figment <laughs> of the imagination of a Scottish journalist <laughs> who... Uh, said he was working with me. No, it's not, it's not a fact. It's, it's one of those apocryphal stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't swear. This is one of the things that uh, I, I'm not normally a swearing person, you know, I usually find enough words <laughs> to use. And, uh, but I know some people, particularly down south, uh, who can swear quite a lot in normal conversation and yet can get through a commentary without a word. But that story you were talking about, no, that was, uh, I use another version of it, which I, I don't have to swear in. It was uh, during a game between, I think it was Poland and Scotland, and uh, I was just waxing lyrical about the, the stadium and the crowd and the lovely evening, etc. And the next thing I looked up, the ball was in a Scottish net. And I said to the gentleman in question, supposed to be, <laughs> uh, who scored that, you know? And he said, Lord of I know, you see. So I said, and so only two minutes and a quarter disaster for Scotland. Poland have gone ahead to score that big blonde striker, Blood of I know. <laughs> well, he didn't say blowed, as you can imagine, you know. In the, in the after dinner speeches, they don't say blowed. <laughs> another. <laughs> That's a story. But it goes round, uh, it's been round a lot of places. I heard, in fact, uh, Ian. You know, Ian down in England, the Saint, Ian St John. Mm-hmm. I heard him use it on one occasion that, that he, it had happened to him, you know. Oh, no, it was on the, that's right, it was on television. I heard him use it, you know. Using <laughs> your story. Yeah. Um, can you tell us also about your catchphrase, uh, which is obviously Odin with the group here, and yeah. how it came about, if you know. I don't know how it came about. Uh, it was just something that I possibly said, and I possibly said it more often than I, I realised, and people began to say, you know, oh dear, oh dear, it's David Francis. <laughs> so, uh, you know, why spoil a good thing by not using it? So uh, it just developed 
and uh, I found myself naturally saying it quite a lot. And people got to, like someone said, I should have called my autobiography, oh dear, oh dear. But uh, no, it just, it just happened. Mm. A lot of, I, I think Dougie Donnelly's is now supposed to be, can we, no we can't, or something like that, and he claims oh. never to have said oh, that. Yes, yes. But I've never uttered those words. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you were on, were you on Only an Excuse? Did they feature you in the radio version, is that right? Uh, yeah, they, yes, they did, but they also featured me in the television right. one, yes. Before my time. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> well, seriously, you know, uh, Jonathan did uh-huh. a programme, The Golden Years, uh-huh, and yeah. they, they featured me a bit in that too. All oh, right, I'll need to put that one up <laughs> as well. I don't watch enough television. <laughs> <laughs> you probably do. <laughs> Um, is it true also that you were once a runner-up in a David Francis <laughs> competition? Yeah, that's that's another story, and I never tell anyone whether it's right or wrong. But uh, yeah, see, I came fourth. <laughs> and who won? <laughs> He's never been heard of again. <laughs> um, a story that that we found quite interesting was. I think you were always quite a popular commentator with footballers themselves. Yes, yes. But in particular, Tommy McCulloch of Clyde, is that right? Oh, yes, Tommy. And you know, funnily enough, I met Tommy a few months ago up at the shopping centre at Newton Mercia, just a few months ago. Uh, yes, Tommy used to take a, a set, a tranny with him. He was the goalkeeper of Clyde, you see, and he used to take a tranny, come out with it in his cap and put it in the net behind his goal. And I'm told in good authority he, he used to listen to the, the games, you know. Because <laughs> we we've actually we've been in touch with him. It's my colleague Claire. We've split up all the clubs, so oh, we've all yeah. got a certain amount of clubs, uh-huh. yeah, and Clyde is one of her clubs. So she was, um, she's been out and she's got all his medals and his shirts oh, and all that yeah. stuff. And I was like, did you get a transistor radio off? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and get that now. So she needs to get back in touch with him and see if he's still got the old tranny that he goes with him. What were some of the biggest matches that you commentated on? Do you have any? Yeah, well, the, the biggest, the first biggest one, of course, was a Celtic in Lisbon uh, in the European Cup final. That, that was the, the first one. Uh, I did many after that, uh, but they all sort of, that, as I say, it was the first sort of major event, so that one sort of stands out with me. And I've got a tape there, the big match. I don't, it was done in five, two. I'll let you have a copy if you like, because there are people like Billy McNeil and Tommy Gemmell and myself, and uh, I think Willie Wallace is on it too. You know, one or two of the Celtic people are on it from that game. Right, so that's the big match, and uh, oh well, there were umpteen Scottish games, you know, international matches. There was Rangers in the the, the Cup Winners Cup final, seventy was it? Uh, and uh, the one of the most exciting periods was Argentina, of course, and I'll, I'll, I've got a few memorabilia. Unfortunately, I got rid of a lot of memorabilia not very long ago but I've got something there I'll let you see and if you're interested you, you're, you're welcome oh, yeah. uh, from Argentina uh, but there have been so many mm. it's difficult to pick out anyone you see every game to me as someone said <laughs> I think it was Jim McLean said in the foreword to my book that every game to me was an event you know Kenneth Wilson home did the, the European Celtic in Lisbon as well, didn't he? he what did, was he Kenneth? Did, well, obviously he's still did, around. He did the television uh, one. 
Mm-hmm. I did the radio with Brian Moore. Brian Moore and I did radio. And Kenny, and I think Archie was with Kenny in that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, he's uh, Kenny was a marvellous chap. I, I thought he was a superb television commentator. Mm-hmm. But Kenny was one of the chaps I tell you about that wasn't averse to putting in a few words. Like <laughs> <laughs> in the dictionary. Uh-huh. But he, he managed to go through the whole commentary. Great aplomb. <laughs> He's another one actually that we will need to kind of track down. Because uh, right. obviously he's done quite a few of the big Scotland England games. Well, that's Israel, right. That's right. Like yeah, that, yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, do you have any memories of the Hamden press box specifically? I think there was one about the window. Did the window steam up? Was that the story in that? <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> uh, yeah, I tell you, one of the problems with the Hamden press box was that, uh, you see, I like to lean very much forward uh, to get as close to the park as possible, and the, the windows were inclined to steam up a bit. So I, of course, opened them, and uh, many of the engineers, some of whom weren't at all interested in football on a freezing February night, weren't too happy about the windows being open, you know. But that, that's about the worst thing that ever happened at Hamden, I think, the opening windows and people say, oh, it's freezing in here. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I heard was that there's kind of a through, or there was a through draft kind of in it. Yes, and yes. like quite often everyone would sit with the windows open and then a draft would come in and they're all slammed. <laughs> so I've been told that I think the wee groundsman man, he wasn't, he says the journalists used to leave all the windows open and oh, leave yeah. and he'd just be cleaning up and he'd hear smash. Ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he wasn't too happy. Um, do you think commentators have changed much now compared with when you were starting out and the style and... I don't think they've changed. I don't think the Scottish commentators have changed all that much at all. Uh, they were always sort of, you know, today you've got David Begg and you've got uh, Alistair. Uh, Alexander. Alexander. And uh, that's the thing. Sorry, Alistair. That's my age. <laughs> and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, those sort of people. And they, they are racy commentators, you know. It's, Something after a style of myself, I think. Yeah, mm. In fact, <laughs> tell you another story. I, I had a, someone in cutting the grass the other day. I met him for the first time, and uh, he said to me, "You know, gosh, I know your voice. You know, Alistair Alexander, right?" Eh? <laughs> <laughs> I said, "No." <laughs> Try again. Oh, my father used to listen to you. Yes, David Francie, of course, I should have known. <laughs> why, why did you make the decision to retire? I mean, obviously a lot of people have kind of continued on oh, past yes. or retirely. Why did I you know. decide to? I thought, Annie, that I had really done enough. And uh, Sheila and I are on our own, you know, and uh, I felt we had quite a lot of things to do. And more and more, the European scene was dragging me away, you know, for maybe a week at a time, etc. And away for a week, she was in here alone, and, you know, it wasn't great fun for her. And as I say, I'd done everything I could do in that particular line. I was uh, quite happy with my situation at that time. I felt I was still, I could still do the work if I had to do it. And I thought, no, I'll just decide to go out. And Sheila was shocked when I came home and said to her, I've written a letter to uh, Malcolm Kellard, 
uh, saying that I want to finish at the end of the season. He said, oh, but you know, have you thought about this? I said, yes, I've thought about it long and hard, and having made the decision, that's great. So uh, that was all there was to it. I did a bit of work after that for Radio 4, they asked me to do something. Uh, West Sound asked me to do some Junior Cup final commentaries, which I did for them. Uh, and uh, well, I did uh, a Youth World Cup for STV. Uh-huh. You know, I, I did that series from Aberdeen. That was that was television again. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've done quite a few things since I left. Mm-hmm. But my main thing was BBC, of course, for nearly thirty-six years or whatever. And a long time. A long time. <laughs> <laughs> Just before we finish, um, to go back to the nineteen seventy-eight World Cup, that's something that we're going to look in in a wee bit more depth at because obviously it was the kind of Ali McLeod with Mr right. Media. That's <laughs> right, yes, yes. Do you think he handled the media well? I mean, I think there was a backlash afterwards, but... Ah, yes, no, I, I think... I think Alistair handled it well. He... he was a, He's a great enthusiast himself. <laughs> Alistair, you know that. He'd be enthusiastic about that cup of coffee, you know, he could make you excited about it. He was a great enthusiast. And his task, I think, as he saw it, was to build up the nation to get right behind the team. And he did that wonderfully well. You know, the, the, the boys, they weren't all that bad out there, you know. They, they had a bit of bad luck, as Scottish teams always seem to have in major events, you know. But, uh, no, Alistair, Alistair did as good a job as any Scottish manager would have done, I'm sure. And he brought the whole nation, you know, I, I think I say in my book, my grandson was going to be out singing, we're on our way with Ali's army, and my wife said, who taught you all those ones, Ali, you're just a wee boy, you know. And he, she said, your daddy teaching all these? Well, he said, no, it was mother grand. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the sort of mood of the nation. And no, I think he did a good job, honestly, yeah. Do you think the fact that um, kind of other World Cups subsequent to that have been much more low-key in Scotland. Do you think that was kind of because yeah, yeah. 78 had been built up so much and yeah, then yes. hadn't really amounted to anything? I think that's true. I wasn't involved after. I was involved in the uh, stages up to the final itself, but I wasn't involved in the final in Spain, for instance. And uh, But I felt there wasn't the same excitement about it mm. as there was. I think that was really a one-off. I mean, I did the one in Germany in 74, and it was quite a quiet affair too compared to Argentina, here we come. <laughs> what was the mood the mood like in Argentina when things started to kind of go wrong, as it were, when the drugs get, was it, was the relationship between the media and the Scotland camp still quite friendly or did it deteriorate? I think it deteriorated a bit. Uh, I, I, I get on fine with Alistair and... Uh, I can't really say that there was any great... I mean, obviously, the the boys wanted Scotland to win and they were disappointed, you know, when they they didn't win. But I I don't know if anyone was too hard on them. Another thing about that, now that you raise that point, a number of newspapers had sent over the hard-nosed journalists rather than sports journalists, as well as the sports journalists. And I think you probably found the sports journalists were more sympathetic but the guys who were looking for headlines, you know, were <laughs> more inclined to put the boot in. <laughs> mm. Do you think it was maybe because 
England weren't involved as well, there was more attention in Scotland. Well, all the attention was in Scotland, that, that's true. And an awful lot of the, the people working over there were English writers mm. and English media men, you know, mm. who hadn't the same sympathy or heart for Scotland. Yeah. Um, just before we finish, one of the things that we're quite I mean, we're conscious of, we want to kind of go through the history, and it's about 100 years, obviously, the history of press and then radio and television covering football. I haven't and we started want... then. <laughs> Not quite. Really? Really? <laughs> <laughs> we're quite. We want to kind of pick out the who the important people were. Yes. In in, um, in radio, television and the press. Do you have it? I mean, people like, obviously like Hugh Taylor and John McKenzie were just anxious that we're not missing anyone. Do, can you think of anyone that, that we're missing? Rex. Rex. Rex Kingsley. Uh, what Sunday do you know Mayo. of Rex? He was kind uh, of a film star character. <laughs> aye, Rex was... Uh, I didn't know him all that well, but he had done such things as form a party for the blind, Rex party for the blind. Uh, he had a number of commentators who used to take blind parties to the ground and uh, do, they did commentaries uh, to the, the wee group of people round about them, you know. That was something which Rex started and uh, he, he was just, he was a splendid writer. It used to be, he used to be the male really, you know, the... He wrote the big featured articles in the mail. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's about all I could tell you about Rex. He, he was a very sort of handsome, theatrical type of chap. <laughs> Gallus, I think the term is. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> I'm trying to say, um, one person that comes up quite a lot and no one seems to know very much about him was... Is it, what was his name? It was Waverly. Was it Willie Gallagher? Oh, yes, Willie Gallagher. Yes, yes. Yes, that's another, he was another big name. Uh, I didn't know Willie at all well. Mm. I think he was a, a quieter sort of chap, mm. you know. I didn't know him at all well. That's, it seems a lot of people didn't really yeah, know him. No, no. It's quite, uh, it seemed to be quite yeah. terrifying. Because <laughs> it worked on the record at the same time, that's you know, true. something of a tyrant. Oh, well, that's, that's what people wanted to forget him. You've got Jack Harkness, haven't you? Now, who was Jack Harkness? He wrote for The Post. Post. And Jack Harkness was a a goalkeeper, international goalkeeper. Mm. He played for Hearts. If I remember checking that, it was Hearts. <laughs> Buggy Harkness, sure it was Hearts. And uh, he, he wrote for the Post. At the start of the podcast, we asked you which Scottish comedian was the face of the long-running football comedy show, Only an Excuse. The answer is Jonathan Watson. Only an Excuse first started as a one-off radio special in 1987, parodying the BBC documentary series Only a Game from 1986. Following the popularity of the show on radio with its one-off specials, it moved to television and replaced Scotch and Rye's Hogmanay TV slot in 1993. At first, Jonathan Watson was joined by fellow comedian Tony Roper, but Roper departed in the mid-1990s and Watson was joined by a host of comedians giving their take on Scottish football, such as Greg Hemphill, Alistair McGowan, Gerard Kelly and Tom Urie. In 2020, the show's creator Philip Differ announced that the 2020 Hogmanay special would be the last show. It's certainly going to be different having something else showing at Hogmanay this year while we count down to the bells. 
Thank you for listening to this edition of the Scottish Football Citizen. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And join us again next week when we'll be looking back at more of the best of Scottish football from the past. If you'd like an extra football fix in your inbox every Tuesday, you can subscribe to Football Memories Scotland's weekly newsletter, The Football Special, and receive an email full of excellent pictures and stories from days gone by. To find out more, email lindsay at lindsay.hamilton at scottishfootballmuseum.org.uk We'd like to remind our listeners that Michael McEwan's book, The Ghosts of Cathkin Park, is now on sale. Priced normally at £17.99, listeners of the Scottish Football Citizen can take advantage of 20% off for a limited time by entering the discount code CATHKIN2021 on the Berlin website when buying the book. It's a must-read for any fan of Third Lanark or Scottish football history. The Scottish Football Citizen is written, edited and produced by Andy Kerr for Football Memories Scotland in association with Alzheimer Scotland and the Scottish Football Museum. Additional contributions from Robert Harvey, Jim Orr, Lindsay Hamilton and Richard McBrearty. Additional material from BBC Sports Scotland and The Guardian. This interview comes from the Scottish Football Museum archive.